The Last Unicorn, Chapter 10 What can I do for you? Prince Lear asked. Nothing very much just now, Molly Grew said. The water was all I needed, unless you want to peel the potatoes, which will be all right with me. No, I didn't mean that. I mean, yes, I will if you want me to. But I was talking to her. I mean, when I talk to her, that's what I keep asking. Sit down and peel me a few potatoes, Molly said. It'll give you something to do with your hands. They were in the scullery, a dank little room smelling strongly of rotten, rotting turnips and fermenting beets. A dozen earthenware dishes were piled in one corner, and a very small fire was shivering under a tripod, trying to boil a large pot of gray water. Molly sat at a rude table which was covered with potatoes, leeks, onions, peppers, carrots, and other vegetables, most of them limp and spotty. Prince Lear stood before her, rocking slowly along his feet and twisting his big, soft fingers together. "'I killed another dragon this morning,' he said presently. "'That's nice,' Molly answered. "'That's fine. How many does that make now?' Five. This one was smaller than the others, but it really gave me more trouble. I couldn't get near it on foot, so I had to go in with the lance, and my horse got pretty badly burned. It was funny about the horse. Molly interrupted him. "'Sit down, your highness, and stop doing that. I start to twitch all over just watching you.' Prince Lear sat down opposite her. He drew a dagger from his belt and moodily began peeling potatoes. Molly regarded him with a slight, slow smile. "'I brought her the head,' he said. She was in her chamber, as she usually is. I dragged that head all the way up the stairs to lay it at her feet.' He sighed and nicked his finger with the dagger. "'Damn. I didn't mind that. All the way up the stairs it was a dragon's head, the proudest gift anyone can give anyone. But when she looked at it, suddenly it became a sad, battered mass of scales and horns, grisly tongue, bloody eyes. I felt like some country butcher who had brought his lass a nice chunk of fresh meat as a token of his love. And then she looked at me, and I was sorry I had killed the thing. Sorry for killing a dragon.' He slashed at a rubbery potato and wounded himself again. "'Cut away from yourself, not toward,' Molly advised him. "'You know, I really think you could stop slaying dragons for the Lady Amalthea. If five of them haven't moved her, one more isn't likely to do it. Try something else.' "'But what's left on earth that I haven't tried?' Prince Lear demanded. "'I have swum four rivers, each in full flood and none less than a mile wide. I have climbed seven mountains, never before climbed, slept three nights in the marsh of the hanged men, and walked alive out of that forest where the flowers burn your eyes and the nightingales sing poison. I have ended my betrothal to the princess I had agreed to marry, and if you don't think that was a heroic deed, you don't know her mother. I have vanquished exactly fifteen black knights, waiting by fifteen fords in their black pavilions, challenging all who come across, and I've long since lost count of the witches in the thorny woods, the giants, the demons disguised as damsels, the glass hills, fatal riddles, and terrible tasks, the magic apples, rings, lamps, potions, swords, cloaks, boots, neckties, and nightcaps, not to mention the winged horses, the basilisks and sea serpents, and all the rest of the livestock. He raised his head, and the dark blue eyes were confused and sad. And all for nothing, he said. I cannot touch her, whatever I do. For her sake, I have become a hero, a sleepy leer, my father's sport and shame, but I might just as well have remained the dull fool I was. My great deeds mean nothing to her. Molly took up her own knife and began to slice the peppers. Then perhaps the Lady Amalthea is not to be won by great deeds. The prince stared at her, frowning in puzzlement. Is there another way to win a maiden? he asked earnestly. Molly, do you know another way? Will you tell it to me? He leaned across the table to seize her hand. I like being brave well enough, but I'll be a lazy coward again if you think that would be better. 
The sight of her makes me want to do battle with all evil and ugliness, but it also makes me want to sit still and be unhappy. What should I do, Molly? I don't know, she said, suddenly embarrassed. Kindness, courtesy, good works, that sort of thing. A good sense of humor. A small copper and ashes cat with a crooked ear jumped into her lap, purring thunderously and leaning against her hand. Hoping to change the subject, she asked, What about your horse? What was funny? But Prince Lear was staring at the little cat with the crooked ear. Where did you come from? Is he yours? No, Molly said. I just feed him and hold him sometimes. She stroked the cat's thin throat and it closed its eyes. I thought he lived here. The prince shook his head. My father hates cats. He says that there is no such thing as a cat. It is just a shape that all manner of imps, hobs, and devilkins like to put on to gain easy entrance into the homes of men. He would kill it if he knew you had it here. What about the horse? Molly asked. Prince Lear's face grew glum again. That was strange. When she took no delight in the gift itself, I thought she might be interested to hear how it was won. So I told her about the view and the charge. You know, about the hissing and the naked wings and the way dragons smell, especially on a raining morning, and the way the black blood jumped at the point of my lance. But she heard none of it, not a word, until I spoke of the rush of fire that nearly burned my poor horse's legs from under him. Then... Ah, then she came back from wherever she goes when I talked to her, and she said that she must go and see my horse. So I led her to the stable where the poor brute stood crying with the pain, and she put her hand on him, on his legs, and he stopped moaning. That's a terrible sound they make when they're really hurt. When they stop, it's like a song. The prince's dagger lay glittering among the potatoes. Outside, the great gusts of rain growled round and round the castle walls, but those in the scullery could only hear it, for there was not a single window in the cold room. Nor was there any light except for the meager glow of the cooking fire. It made the cat dozing in Molly's lap look like a heap of autumn leaves. And what happened then, she asked, when the Lady Amalthea touched your horse? Nothing happened, nothing at all. Prince Lear suddenly seemed to become angry. He slammed his hand down on the table, and leeks and lentils leapt in all directions. Did you expect something to happen? She did. Did you expect the beast's burns to heal on the instant, the crackling skin to knit, the black flesh to be whole again? She did. By my hope of her, I swear it. And when his legs didn't grow well under her hand, then she ran away. I don't know where she is now. His voice softened as she spoke, and the hand on the table curled sadly to its side. He rose and went to look into the pot over the fire. It's boiling, he said, if you want to put the vegetables in. She wept when my horse's legs did not heal. I heard her weeping. Yet there were no tears in her eyes when she ran away. Everything else was there, but no tears. Molly put the cat gently on the floor and began gathering the venerable vegetables for the pot. Prince Lear watched her as she moved back and forth, around the table and across the dewy floor. She was singing, If I dance with my feet, as I dance in my dreaming, as graceful and gleaming as death in disguise. Oh, that would be sweet. But then would I hunger to be ten years younger, or wedded, or wise. The prince said, who is she, Molly? What kind of woman is it who believes, who knows, for I saw her face, that she can cure wounds with a touch, and who weeps without tears? Molly went on about her work, still humming to herself. Any woman can weep without tears, she answered over her shoulder, and most can heal with their hands. It depends on the wound. She is a woman, your highness, and that's riddle enough. But the prince stood up to bar her way, and she stopped, her apron full of herbs and her hair trailing into her eyes. Prince Lear's face bent toward her, older by five dragons, but handsome and silly still. He said, You sing. My father sets you to the weariest work there is to do, and still you sing. 
There has never been singing in this castle, or cats, or the smell of good cooking. It is the Lady Amalthea who causes this, as she causes me to ride out in the morning, seeking danger. I was always a fair cook, said Molly mildly. Living in the green one with Cully and his men for seventeen years. Prince Lear continued as though she had not spoken. I want to serve her as you do, to help her find whatever she has come here to find. I wish to be whatever she has most need of. Tell her so. Will you tell her so? Even as he spoke, a soundless step sounded in his eyes, and the sigh of a satin gown troubled his face. The Lady Amalthea stood in the doorway. A season in King Haggard's chill domain had not dimmed or darkened her. Rather, the winter had sharpened her beauty until it invaded the beholder like a barbed arrow that could not be withdrawn. Her white hair was caught up with a blue ribbon, and her gown was lilac. It did not fit her well. Molly Grew was an indifferent seamstress, and satin made her nervous. But the Lady Amalthea seemed more lovely for the poor work, for the cold stones and the smell of turnips. There was rain in her hair. Prince Lear bowed to her, a quick crooked bow, as though someone had hit him in the stomach. My lady, he mumbled, you really should cover your head when you go out this weather. The Lady Amalthea sat down at the table, and the little autumn-colored cat immediately sprang up before her, purring swiftly and very softly. She put out her hand, but the cat slid away, still purring. He did not appear frightened, but he would not let her touch his rusty fur. The Lady Amalthea beckoned, and the cat wiggled all over like a dog, but he would not come near. Prince Lear said hoarsely, I must go. There is an ogre of some sort devouring village maidens two days' ride from here. It is said that he can be slain only by one who wields the great axe of Duke Alban. Unfortunately, Duke Alban himself was one of the first consumed. He was dressed as a village maiden at the time to deceive the monster, and there is little doubt who holds the great axe now. If I do not return, think of me. Farewell. Farewell, your highness, Molly said. The prince bowed again and left the scullery on his noble errand. He looked back only once. You are cruel to him, Molly said. The Lady Amalthea did not look up. She was offering her open palm to the crooked-eared cat. But he stayed where he was, shivering with the desire to go to her. Cruel, she asked. How can I be cruel? That is for mortals. But then she did raise her eyes, and they were great with sorrow and with something very near to mockery. She said, so was kindness. Molly grew busied herself with the cooking pot, stirring the soup and seasoning it, bustling numbly. In a low voice she remarked, you might give him a gentle word at least. He has undergone mighty trials for you. But what word shall I speak? asked the Lady Amalthea. I have said nothing to him, yet every day he comes to me with more heads, more horns and hides and tails, more enchanted jewels and bewitched weapons. What will he do if I speak? Molly said, He wishes you to think of him. Knights and princes know only one way to be remembered. It's not his fault. I think he does very well. The Lady Amalthea turned her eyes to the cat again. Her long fingers twisted a seam of the satin gown. No, he does not want my thoughts, she said softly. He wants me, as much as the Red Bull did, and with no more understanding. But he frightens me even more than the Red Bull, because he has a kind heart. Now I will never speak a promising word to him. The pale mark on her brow was invisible in the gloom of the scullery. She touched it and then drew her hand away quickly, as though the mark hurt her. The horse died, she said to the little cat. I could do nothing. Molly turned quickly and put her hands on the Lady Amalthea's shoulders. Beneath the sleek cloth, the flesh was cold and hard as any stone of King Haggard's castle. Oh, my lady, she whispered, that is because you are out of your true form. When you regain yourself, it will all return. All your power, all your strength, all your sureness, it will come back to you. 
Had she dared, she would have taken the white girl in her arms and lulled her like a child. She had never dreamt of such a thing before. But the Lady Amalthea answered, The magician gave me only the semblance of a human being, the seeming but not the spirit. If I had died then, I would still have been a unicorn. The old man knew, the wizard. He said nothing to spite Haggard, but he knew. Of itself, her hair escaped the blue ribbon and came hurrying down her neck and over her shoulders. The cat was all but won by his eagerness. He lifted a paw to play with it, but he drew back once more and sat on his haunches, tail curled round his front feet, queer head to the side. His eyes were green, speckled with gold. But that was long ago, the girl said. Now I am too, myself and this other that you call my lady, for she is here as truly as I am now, though once she was only a veil over me. She walks in the castle, she sleeps, she dresses herself, she takes her meals, and she thinks her own thoughts. If she has no power to heal or to quiet, still she has another magic. Men speak to her, saying, Lady Amalthea, and she answers them, or she does not answer. The king is always watching her out of his pale eyes, wondering what she is, and the king's son wounds himself with loving her and wonders who she is. And every day she searches the sea and the sky, the castle and the courtyard, the keep in the king's face, for something she cannot always remember. What is it? What is it that she is seeking in this strange place? She knew a moment ago, but she has forgotten. She turned her face to Molly Grew, and her eyes were not the unicorn's eyes. They were lovely still, but in a way that had a name, as a human woman is beautiful. Their depth could be sounded and learned, and their degree of darkness was quite discernible. Molly saw fear and loss and bewilderment when she looked into them, and herself, and nothing more. Unicorns, she said. The Red Bull has driven them all away, all but you. You are the last unicorn. You came here to find the others and to set them free, and so you will. Slowly the deep, secret sea returned to the Lady Amalthea's eyes, filling them until they were as old and dark and unknowable and indescribable as the sea. Molly watched it happen and was afraid, but she gripped the bowed shoulders even more tightly, as though her hands could draw despair like a lightning rod. And as she did so, there shivered in the scullery floor a sound she had heard before, a sound like great teeth, molars, grinding together. The Red Bull was turning in his sleep. I wonder if he dreams, Molly thought. The Lady Amalthea said, I must go to him. There is no other way and no time to spare. In this form of my own, I must face him again, even if all my people are dead and there is nothing to be saved. I must go to him, before I forget myself forever. But I do not know the way, and I am lonely. The little cat switched his tail and made an odd sound that was neither a meow nor a purr. I will go with you, Molly said. I don't know the way down to the bull either, but there must be one. Schmindrick will come too. He'll make the way for us if we can't find it. I hope for no help from the magician, the Lady Amalthea replied disdainfully. I see him every day playing the fool for King Haggard, amusing him by his failures, by blundering at even the most trifling trick. He says that it is all he can do until his power speaks in him again, but it never will. He is no magician now, but the king's clown. Molly's face suddenly hurt her, and she turned away to inspect the soup again. Answering past a sharpness in her throat, she said, He is doing it for you. While you brood and mope and become someone else, he jigs and jests for Haggard, diverting him so that you may have time to find your folk if they are to be found. But it cannot be long before the king tires of him, as he tires of all things, and casts him down to his dungeons or some place darker. You do wrong to mock him. Her voice was a child's thin, sad mumble, she said, but that will never happen to you. Everyone loves you. 
They had a moment to look at each other, the two women, the one fair and foreign in the cold, low room, the other appearing quite at home in such surroundings, an angry little beetle with her own kitchen beauty. Then they heard boots scraping, armor clinking, and the gusty voices of old men. King Haggard's four-minute arms came trooping into the scullery. They were all at least seventy years old, gaunt and limping, fragile as crusted snow, but all clad from head to foot in King Haggard's miserly mail and bearing his wry weapons. They entered hailing Molly Grew cheerfully and asking what she had made for supper, but at the sight of the Lady Amalthea all four became very quiet and bowed deep bows that made them gasp. "'My lady,' said the oldest of the men, "'command your servants. We are used men, spent men, but if you would see miracles you have only to request the impossible of us. We will become young again if you wish it so.' His three comrades muttered their agreement. But the Lady Amalthea whispered an answer, "'No, no, you will never be young again.' Then she fled from them with her wild, blinding hair hiding her face and the satin gown hissing. "'How wise she is!' the oldest man-at-arms declared. "'She understands that not even her beauty can do battle with time. It is a rare sad wisdom for one so young. That soup smells delicious, Molly.' "'It smells too savory for this place,' the second man grumbled as they all sat down around the table. "'Haggard hates good food. He says that no meal is good enough to justify all the money and effort wasted in preparing it. It is an illusion, says he, and an expense. Live as I do, undeceived. Brah! He shuddered and grimaced, and the others laughed. To live like Haggard, said another man-at-arms as Molly spooned the steaming soup into his bowl. That will be my fate in the next world if I don't behave myself in this one. Why do you stay in his service, then? Molly demanded. She sat down with them and rested her chin on her hands. He pays you no wages, she said, and he feeds you as little as he dares. He sends you out in the worst weather to steal for him in Hagsgate, for he never spends a penny of the wealth in his strong room. He forbids everything from lights to lutes, from fires to fairs, and singing to sinning, from books and beers and talk of spring to games you play with bits of string. Why not leave him? What in the world is there to keep you here? The four old men looked nervously at one another, coughing and sighing. The first said, It is our age. Where else could we go? We are too old to be wandering the roads looking for work and shelter. It is our age, said the second man-at-arms. When you are old, anything that does not disturb you is a comfort. Cold and darkness and boredom long ago lost their sharp edges for us, but warmth, singing, spring, no, they would all be disturbances. There are worse things than living like Haggard. The third man said, Haggard is older than we are. In time, Prince Lear will be king of this country, and I will not leave the world until I have seen that day. I have always been fond of the boy, since he was small. Molly found that she was not hungry, she looked around at the faces of the old men and listened to the sound their seamy lips and shrunken throats made as they drank her soup, and she was suddenly glad that King Haggard always had his meals alone. Molly inevitably came to care for anyone she fed. Cautiously, she asked them, "'Have you ever heard a tale that Prince Lear is not Haggard's adopted nephew at all?' The men-at-arms showed no surprise at the question. "'Aye,' the eldest replied. "'We know that story.' It may well be true, for the prince certainly bears no familial resemblance to the king. But what of it? Better a stolen stranger ruled the land than a true son of King Haggard. But if the prince was stolen from Hagsgate, Molly cried, then he is the man who will make the curse on this castle come true. And she repeated the rhyme that the man Drin had recited in the end at Hagsgate. Yet none but one of Hagsgate town may bring the castle swirling down. <clears throat> but the old men shook their heads, grinning with teeth as rusty as their casks and corselets. Not Prince Lear, the third man said. The prince may slay a thousand dragons, but he will level no castles, overthrow no kings. It is not in his nature. 
He is a dutiful son who seeks, alas, only to be worthy of the man he calls his father. Not Prince Lear, the rhyme must speak of some other. And even if Prince Lear were the one, the second man added, even if the curse had marked him for its messenger, still he would fail, for between King Haggard and any doom stands the Red Bull. A silence sprang into the room and stood there, darkening all faces with its savage shadow and chilling the good hot soup with its breath. The little autumn cap stopped purring on Molly's lap, and the thin cooking fire cowered down. The cold scullery, scullery walls seemed to draw closer together. The four men-at-arms, who had not spoken before, called across the dark to Molly Grew. There is the true reason that we stay in Haggard's employ. He does not wish us to leave, and what King Haggard wishes or does not wish is the only concern of the Red Bull. We are Haggard's minions, but we are all the Red Bull's prisoners." Molly's hand was steady as she stroked the cat, but her voice was pinched and dry as she spoke. "'What is the Red Bull to King Haggard?' It was the oldest man-at-arm who answered. "'We do not know. The Bull has always been here. It served Haggard as his army and his bulwark. It is his strength and the source of his strength. It must be this one companion as well, for I am sure he descends into its lair betimes, down some secret stair. But whether it obeys Haggard from choice or compulsion, and whether the Bull or the King is the master—' that we have never known. The fourth man, who was the youngest, leaned toward Molly Grew, his pink-wet eyes suddenly eager. He said, The Red Bull is a demon, and its reckoning for attending Haggard will one day be Haggard himself. Another man interrupted him, insisting that the clearest evidence showed the Bull was King Haggard's enchanted slave, and would be until it broke the bewitchment that held it and destroyed its former lord. They began to shout and spill their soup. But Molly asked, not loudly, but in a way that made them all be still. Do you know what a unicorn is? Have you ever seen one? Of everything alive in the little room, only the cat and the silence seemed to look back at her with any understanding. The foreman blinked and belched and rubbed their eyes. Deep, restless, the sleeping bull stirred again. The meal being over, the men-at-arms saluted Molly Grew and left the scullery, two for their beds, two to take up the night's vigil in the rain. The oldest of the men waited until the others were gone before he said quietly to Molly, Be careful of the Lady Amalthea. When she first came here, her beauty was such that even this accursed castle became beautiful too, like the moon which is only a shining stone. But she has been here too long. Now she is as beautiful as ever. But the rooms and roofs that contain her are somehow meaner for her presence. <clears throat> he gave a long sigh, which frayed into a whine. I am familiar with that kind of beauty, he said, but I had never seen that other sort before. Be careful of her. She should go away from here. Alone. Molly put her face in the little cat's random fur. The cooking fire fluttered low, but she did not get up to feed it. Small, swift creatures scuttled across the room, making a sound like King Haggard's voice, and the rain rumbled against the castle walls, sounding like the red bull. Then, as though in answer, she heard the bull. His bellow shattered the stones under her feet, and she clinched desperately at the table, to keep herself and the cat from plunging down to him. She cried out. The cat said, He is going out. He goes out every sundown to hunt for the strange white beasts that escaped him. You know that perfectly well. Don't be stupid. The hungering roar came again, further away. Molly caught her breath and stared at the little cat. She was not as amazed as another might have been. These days she was harder to surprise than most women. "'Could you always talk?' she asked the cat. "'Or was it the sight of the Lady Amalthea that gave you speech?' The cat licked a front paw reflectively. 
It was the sight of her that made me feel like talking, he said at length, and let us leave it at that. So that is a unicorn. She is very beautiful. How do you know she is a unicorn? Molly demanded. And why were you afraid to let her touch you? I saw you. You were afraid of her. I doubt that I will feel like talking for very long, the cat replied without rancor. I would not waste time in foolishness if I were you. As to your first question, no cat out of its first fur can ever be deceived by appearances, unlike human beings who enjoy them. As for your second question, here he faltered and suddenly became very interested in washing, nor would he speak until he had licked himself fluffy and then licked himself smooth again. Even then he would not look at Molly, but examine his claws. If she had touched me, he said very softly, I would have been hers and not my own, not ever again. I wanted her to touch me, but I could not let her. No cat will. We let human beings caress us because it is pleasant enough and calms them, but not her. The price is more than a cat can pay. Molly picked him up then, and he purred into her neck for such a long while that she began to fear that his moment of speech had passed. But presently, he said, you have very little time. Soon she will no longer remember who she is or why she came to this place, and the Red Bull will no longer roar in the night for her. It may be that she will marry the good prince, who loves her. The cat pushed his head hard into Molly's suddenly still hand. Do that, he commanded. The prince is very brave to love a unicorn. A cat can appreciate valiant absurdity. No, Molly Crew said. No, it, this, that cannot be. She is the last. Well then, she must do what she came here to do. The cat replied, she must take the king's way down to the bull. Molly held him so fiercely that he gave a mouse-like squeak of protest. Do you know the way, she asked, as eagerly as Prince Lear had demanded of her. Tell me the way. Tell me where we must go. She put the cat down on the table and took her hands off him. The cat made no answer for a long time, but his eyes grew brighter and brighter, gold shivering down to cover the green. His crooked ear twitched, and the black tip of his tail, and nothing more. When the wine drinks itself, he said, when the skull speaks, when the clock strikes the right time, only then will you find the tunnel that leads to the Red Bull's lair. He tucked his paws under his chest and added, There's a trick to it, of course. I'll bet, Molly said grimly. There is a horrible, crumbly old skull stuck up high in a pillar in the Great Hall, but, but it hasn't had anything to say for some time. The clock that stands nearby is mad and strikes when it pleases. Midnight every hour, seventeen o'clock at four, perhaps not a sound for a week. And the wine. Oh, Cat, wouldn't it be simpler just to show me the tunnel? You know where it is, don't you? Of course I know, answered the Cat, with a glinting, curling yawn. Of course it would be simpler for me to show you. Save a lot of time and trouble. His voice was becoming a sleepy drawl, and Molly realized that, like King Haggard himself, he was losing interest. Quickly she asked him, "'Tell me one thing, then. What became of the unicorns? Where are they?' The cat yawned again. "'Near and far, far and near,' he murmured. "'They are within sight of your lady's eyes, but almost out of reach of her memory. They are coming closer, and they are going away.' He closed his eyes. Molly's breath came like rope, fretting against her harsh throat. "'Damn you! Why won't you help me?' she cried. "'Why must you always speak in riddles?' One eye opened slowly, green and gold as sunlight in the woods. The cat said, I am what I am. I would tell you what you want to know if I could, for you have been kind to me. But I am a cat, and no cat anywhere ever gave anyone a straight answer. 
His last few words drowsed away into a deep, regular purr, and he was asleep with one eye partly open. Molly held him on her lap and stroked him, and he purred in his sleep, but did not speak again.